Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. Once again, I am not joined by my co-host, John Lancaster. Last week, he was signing a lease, so he missed the Ben Norton interview. This week, he's off moving into his new apartment, taking longer than he had anticipated. However, I am fortunate enough to be joined by Danny Scherzen. He's a retired major in the U.S. Army. He's uh, the author of several books, including uh, Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge, and more recently, Patriotic Descent. The upcoming book, The True History of the United States, you can also find his writing at antiwar.com, Shearpost, The Nation, The American Conservative, and many other places. Along with all that, he's also the host of the Fortress on a Hill podcast, and he's nice enough to join us today to talk once again about American history, the use of language, and the hypocrisies therein. Danny, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Super glad to do it. I couldn't have thought of anyone better to have on to discuss this topic. And I, actually, we planned this episode, ironically, before some events that took place last week. So I'll, I'll just say right up front, we're recording this on Friday. And this past week is actually the week after we saw a military coup in Myanmar. And ironically, like we, I wanted to talk about different uprisings around the world and the the ones that the United States supports versus the ones that it will condemn. And, you know, this actually came into my head because of the Capitol riots a few weeks ago. Uh, me and my co-host were joking around like this is the exact kind of right wing riot slash uprising that the United States has typically supported in other countries, whether it be Bolivia, Chile, uh, Indonesia. And it's kind of like the chickens come home to roost in this case. But then this other event happens internationally, the Myanmar coup. So now we have condemnation from the United States. So this is a great opportunity today to kind of call attention to some of that hypocrisy and consistency and maybe try to figure out some of the true motivations here. So I'll, I'll just introduce us by talking about this concept of language. And I know you've talked about this a lot, Danny. Always look to the language, right? And I always see that in like a kind of Chomsky manufactured consent sort of way, the way that the way in which we talk about official U.S. enemies compared to the way that we talk about U.S. itself or its allies. So I wanted to talk today and highlight some disparities in the language in our mainstream discourse that tend to reinforce power dynamics and, of course, the U.S. empire. So... We've been trying to, like I said, we've been trying to call the fact that on January 6th, the right-wing insurrection in D.C. is very similar to some other times the U.S. has supported very similar kinds of uprisings overseas. And yet, you didn't hear this much in mainstream media. You you heard a lot of people outraged at this attack on democracy, This that this is un-American. You even heard some people unironically say, this is what you see in banana republics. And I, of course, wanted to get your take on this because it's just so, for people who know this kind of history, it's appalling to hear this kind of language, the, the, the utter hypocrisy in it. So let's get started here. Let's talk about a few cases of quote-unquote democratic uprisings, armed uprisings. And for each of these, I want you to take as much time as you need to discuss the events of each uprising, the U.S. policy toward it, and the hypocrisy therein. So a couple of examples I thought we could start with that are pretty recent that people will remember are the Syrian uprising, the Syrian armed uprising that began in 2011, compared to that 
Ukrainian uprising uh, of 2014 and the, what became the Ukrainian civil war. Some argue that it's a Russian invasion, the Russian involvement there. So would you mind riffing on those two events and talk about how they compare to each other, especially with regards to the United States reaction? Well, sure. Uh, and I, I mean, I just love the fact that you're, you know, honing in on language and then using like historical and current examples for contrast. I mean, if I love it. Uh, most people don't want to geek out on that. But the thing is, it's like more than just, um, you know, some sort of diversion into, you know, the intellectual. This this matters because what's always interesting to me is that Americans are sort of we're like inherently non self-aware people. Right. Like we're just we're just not known for our self-awareness. Like we're uh, we let we act as though our actions in the world are. Of, of course, they mean well, at the very least, they usually are great. Uh, and if not, we meant well. And then we don't really understand why there's anti-American sentiment. Uh, and, and I would say that, you know, in my limited experience in both Iraq and Afghanistan, but then in a broader like study, one of the things that seems to always be uh, at the tip of the tongue and at the top of the head of people when you ask them, what, why are you frustrated with Americans? And I, I would hear this from the Iraqis and the uh, Afghans. And what it would usually be right off the bat is hypocrisy. Like they would point out the hypocrisy of the way we treat different peoples around the world. And, and so that's going to you know, lead into Syria, Ukraine and some of the others we're going to talk about, because it's like we just can't see ourselves and we don't realize uh, how unequally we treat people. Uh, Bush did say, in fact, because I think this is important about the Capitol riot and all this. Uh, he, Bush tweeted George W. Bush, right? Uh, Bush the uh, younger or the lesser, however you prefer your British phraseology, uh, he said that this is the kind of thing that goes on in Banana Republic. And then I, of course, couldn't help myself. I had to be, you know, sort of petulant. I tweeted like, and I should know because I've been invading and occupying Banana Republics for quite some time, you know, after fostering such things. Um, but it's not just the Republican. It's not just a Bush thing. The other thing is that I had written a piece, and this is my lead into the general segment, uh, a while ago, actually, for antiwar.com and picked up by a bunch of other places. And it was in July. And it was, you know, I was on an Orwell kick. Anyone who, like, knows my writing knows I get into kicks of either subjects or authors. And so it was called uh, All Civilian Lives Are Equal, But Some Are More Equal Than Others. <laughs> and, of course, I'm playing on Animal Farm, you know, like all animals are equal. <laughs> and then eventually they change it, you know. Uh, and I actually break down, and I'll get to it in a bit after I go into some of the cases. I break down like my little rules of thumb on how you figure out whether America, where, whether America's government at least cares about, you know, cares about another country's people, and it, it has a lot to do with our own interests. But anyway, so let's let's think about Syria, Ukraine for a second. And uh, in Syria, the United States was pretty bullish early on on the rebellion. Uh, we've had a tortured relationship with uh, the Assad family, uh, although, you know, the, the, the president come dictator there, although at certain times we've been more willing to work with them than others. In fact, uh, we sold out one of the more democratic elements in the late Lebanese, so one of the most nationalist and sort of unifying of the community's elements uh, within the Lebanese civil war in the late 80s to the Syrians uh, in order to get them to help us with the Gulf War, to join that coalition and give it legitimacy. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, that guy, that guy that the Syrians took and uh, tossed you know, uh, into his palace and surrounded with their tanks, and then he had to go into exile for 20 years. Oh, man, I feel like he might be important still. Oh, he's the president of Lebanon now, and we wonder why he has problems with America. So we've, been, we've gone back and forth to Syria, but you know, when the Arab Spring opens up, uh, Obama kind of hedges for a while, and I think that the Hawks, 
uh, many of whom, by the way, are now in Biden's uh, administration. We're talking the Hill- Hillary Clintonites, uh, Jake Sullivan being the prime one. I mean, these guys and gals wanted regime change in Syria. Uh, no one really thought a whole lot about who was in the coalition. Who was in this coalition? I mean, to what were there moderate rebels? I mean, I mean, Max Blumenthal put together like basically a brand based on how absurd that comment was that we're going to support the moderate rebels. And uh, and of course, what we realized is pretty quickly, uh, it's really difficult to control the uprisings of foreign peoples. And in chaos, and this is not an endorsement of Assad, right? In chaos, sometimes not the best folks rise to the top. There is something that, you know, uh, social and political scientists refer to as like the extremist advantage in a civil war, the idea that the the person who's the most extreme actually tends to rise to the top and for a number of reasons, you know, gathers power and influence within a rebellion. So anyway, uh, ISIS uh, is kind of the the stepchild of all this. Of course, the Syrian uprising, to the extent that it gets as Islamist flavored as it does, is only a function of the fact that the United States illegally invaded Iraq, creating the seeds for, you know, this massive Islamic cross-border undertaking. But in Syria, these are good guys, we don't look at them. So most of the examples that I have are gonna be a contrast. In some ways, this one is a bit of a comparison because we don't talk about Ukraine. Now, one of the reasons Assad has to go is because in the view of the Clintonites, the Hillary Clintonites, is that Assad is close with Iran and uh, and Assad is, you know, although that's, you know, he's he's been a problem for Israel. Uh, he's close with Iran. And oh, by the way, we came to find out Americans learned something that they never knew because it just happened. Did anybody know that in 2010, just the year before the civil war starts, Russia put a naval base in Syria? Wait, no, that's been there since the early 70s when they went into the Soviet bloc. But it was treated as though it was a proxy war with Russia. Now, move north to another ongoing proxy war with Russia. And in the Ukraine, the United States had way more involvement, way more involvement in actually fostering the regime change there, fostering sort of the rebellion and the change of government away from a a more, you know, Russian sort of uh, friendly to a more Western friendly, which, by the way, benefits Western capital, as it often does. Uh, And Victoria Nuland, of course, was a big player in this. And I heard she just entered the the Biden administration. And and I wrote about that. So that's a theme you're going to see with all these these wars. But the last point on that is what gets ignored too often or it gets pointed out by people on the right as a way to sort of attack uh, Biden or to attack uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton. And so it's dismissed because the messenger might be flawed, like some messy people have said this. And so we dismiss it. But it doesn't mean that the message is way off, which is that many of the elements in this Ukrainian sort of opposition that then takes power are extreme right-wingers, some outright white supremacist fascists. Now, isn't that particularly ironic, given what just happened at the Capitol riot and how the very same people are so, you know, horrified by white supremacism? So if white supremacism is bad, and it is, if Nazis are bad, then, uh, you know, why do we call it out at the, the capital to the extent that, you know, that was inflected that way? And, and we know that it was for some people. But in Ukraine, that's good, right? Because they're pro-West and they're, they're more pro-NATO. I mean, literally one of the main and most violent groups in Ukraine draws its lineage back to the Ukrainian regiments, as I'm sure you know, that, that fought with the Nazis, yeah. like the Nazi collaborators who invaded Russia. So uh, 
What's the point here? Uh, America doesn't understand, largely doesn't understand either place, uh, is very uh, willy-nilly and, and, and sort of just very carefree about getting involved in these things, fostering regime changes, supporting regime changes. And in both cases, what we got for our money, uh, literally, and in some cases our blood, literally, what we got for it was a worse outcome. More tension with uh, other groups, and, and the real victims tend to be the people of Syria and Ukraine. It is unbelievable that people were buying the Syria thing, though, because this was right. This is literally during the the as the Iraq war was closed. Well, it never really ended, but the the American forces leaving in 2011. We're talking about many of the same Al Qaeda linked fighters fighting in Syria. And suddenly they're the good guys. And the best person who writes about this, besides Max Blumenthal, I'll put Scott Horton on the same level. And I just finished his new book and he's got just about a hundred examples that there is absolutely no way that the Obama administration could not have known that Al-Qaeda was the, and Al-Qaeda-linked groups were the main uh, force within this larger resistance. And it makes sense because like you said, who is going to come with the most uh, fighting ability during a rebellion? It's going to be the most violent forces. The idea that it was going to be a bunch of doctors and lawyers uh, picking up guns to fight the Assad government is it's kind of pie in the sky stuff. Uh, and also before we move on to the next uh, uprisings that the U.S. either supports or doesn't support, we, we can go back a long time with Syria. We can go back to the 1990s, right? Project for a New American Century, uh, coping with crumbling states. They have wanted to destabilize Syria for a very long time. Uh, and this was a perfect opportunity to do so. And and it's, it is funny that they were working with Assad sometimes. Something else that I learned from Horton's book is that they were offering, the United States was often renditioning suspected terrorists to Assad, to Syria to be tortured. And so it's like we accuse Assad of human rights abuses. Well, yeah, sure, he's a, he's a, a Syria has an oppressive government. But it's funny how some of those human rights abuses were directly in the service of the empire, the U.S. empire. That just, it's just so funny. It's like, when do we count those human rights abuses? And, and when do we just point to them as inconvenient facts? You know, the same thing, Saddam Hussein, his worst human rights abuses. Uh, the quiet part is, yeah, but we fully supported him then. <laughs> uh, so I'll move on. So speaking of the Arab Spring, you know, you have this contrast between some of these rebellions are supported by the U.S. And it just so happens to to be when those rebellions are against leaders the U.S. doesn't like. So Assad is one person, Gaddafi is another person, you know, so the United States can pretty much sit by and watch or actually even aid Bahrain in crushing its rebellion because Bahrain is a friend of the United States and, along with Saudi Arabia. But when Libyans rebel, suddenly the United States must get involved and Hillary Clinton needs to, to support the rebels and create a no-fly zone and eventually do regime change. So I was wondering if you could contrast the situation in Libya with another situation that most people will not be as familiar with, and that's in Morocco, uh, specifically in Western Sahara. Uh, and I was wondering if you could elaborate and compare and contrast those two situations. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. And of course, uh, this has been a weird year, speaking of Western Sahara, this has been a weird year where horrible things have happened, which is awful. And they've had the effect of bringing obscure conflicts that like nine of us paid much attention to into the limelight but it's happened like repeatedly you know whether it was like ethiopia tigray mm -hmm. nagorno karabakh uh and now in western sahara because as i'll talk about trump 
becomes basically the only nation in the world to like overtly support this this settler colonial occupation. But so to start with Libya, um, Libya and Western Sahara, uh, and oh, by the way, I mean, if you jump up to Syria, Syria as well, one of the themes that I'm going to run through all these scenarios, it's a minor theme, but keep an eye on it, is the French are right with us right. on a lot of these things. Like, keep an eye on France. Everyone's like, oh, England, England, like there's the British that are always with us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they play nicer ball with us. The French will like be frenemies, but in the clutch, when we're going to do something obscene, it is more often than not the French who are like, well, they're game on for it. The Iraq war being the exception, actually, that kind of proves the rule, although it was a good move by France. So, okay, Libyan lives matter, okay, uh, if they don't oppose Gaddafi. Uh, why is that? Well, because Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, not a great guy, by the way, uh, running theme, that's okay, though. Uh, it, I'd rather him not be in power, but uh, you got to be really careful when you break a country. So in Libya... What we see is Gaddafi is a perfect example of America's favorite game, which is making mountains out of molehill tin pot dictators, like creating a legend, then printing the legend when it you know is more powerful than the truth and then acting as though it was true all along. And so what, this is a perfect example of this is, um, of course, with like uh, Chavez and, and Maduro in Venezuela, uh, Assad to some extent, even the Iranian uh, kind of rulers and, and Ayatollahs over there. Uh, Hussein is the classic example, right? Saddam Hussein. We take a regional minor uh, antagonist, minor power, and we turn him into like Hitler. Everyone's Hitler. I mean, at some point we make the Hitler analogy. So Libya has been a real problem for the United States and also for France in Africa. Um, people forget that we've bombed Libya before you know, in the 80s. And Libya, you know, saw itself as this kind of pan-African powerhouse, wanted to, like, unite the greater Sahel. And uh, France fights him in three separate wars, in 73, 83, and 86. My favorite war, the Toyota War, uh, which I don't understand why Toyota doesn't put that in their commercials. Like, <laughs> hey, what other Trump company had a war in Africa named after them? And, of course, the reason they called it the Toyota War is because the CIA bought a, a few thousand... Toyota Hilux pickup trucks, which the southern Chadians used to kind of expel with French help, the uh, the Libyans. So, and you know, then they, the Libya bombed the discotheque in uh, in Europe and supported the IRA, which we're going to talk about later. Uh, but but the interesting thing about this is, like Assad, America will make deals and will kind of be practical in certain points. And 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 ironically, right after 9/11, especially like in the lead up and and with what's going on in Iraq with regime change. You know, Gaddafi basically says, I'm giving up my WMD, like to the extent that I even had a nascent program. Uh, and his thanks for that, by the way, was regime change. Lesson for anybody who's thinking about making nuclear weapons in the world is this. Hey, I don't like nuclear weapons. I want a freeze movement. But you want practical Danny's advice? You want a conciliary for being bad? Here's what you do. Definitely do it. Definitely get nuclear weapons because it is true that it is a, a decent safeguard or the best one available for not getting your regime changed because Libya's thanks was that they were easily regime changed. Now, the thing about this that we're going to see in a lot of these situations is that um, we inflate this threat to civilians. There's going to be a genocide. You know, you got like the Samantha Powers of the, of, of the world. She has like 
she has like a like a device like one of those like those rods like those divining rods like looking for water except she's looking for like genocide and like one might look at that and say that's a good thing except uh when you overstretch it and you look too hard you'll find it where it isn't so there was a lot of like lying in the media and there was some uh purpose like misuse of language to make it seem like there was definitely a genocide coming and uh the united states you know really leading from behind as obama said and was pilloried for from the french and also the british takes down uh gaddafi on the other hand right uh yemenis for example and that's not the example they don't matter right because you know quarter of a million yemenis are now dead in a war we support uh they don't want to sort of be under saudi control and 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 they've been kind of a neo-colonial sort of entity or like a client state and been controlled for a long time uh no that's okay like we're good with we're good with that their lives don't matter the worst thing we could do to you though is make you invisible and that's what we've done with the sahrawis like the western sahara uh peoples another theme that's running through all these from here on especially is settler colonialism uh you you show me a scenario where there's a modern day settler colonialism and i'll show you the united states on the side of the settler colonists I mean, it's it's sad, right? But it's true. In Western Sahara, of course, this is a Spanish colony. It, it, it gets its independence in 75. It's one of the last colonies in Africa to get its independence. In fact, many people say it's the last colony in the world still, because uh, it turns out you don't have to be a white European to be an imperialist. The Moroccans basically had a claim to it. Uh, the, the, the Western Sahara peoples, the Sahrawis, they wanted independence. Mauritania also wants it. And in 75, one of the ways that Morocco ensures that Spain gives it to them, this disputed territory that doesn't want to be part of Morocco, doesn't want to be part of Spain, uh, the way that they ensure that is through one of my favorite settler colonial events in history, which is this, uh, this Green March in 1975 of 350,000 Moroccan settlers say they're going on a protest, right, a demonstration, but the difference is that instead, when they walked from their version of Selma to Montgomery, it's as though uh, MLK and all those people just, you know, decided to live in Montgomery or something. You know, like <laughs> everyone just stayed. And that's what they did. And so now there's like two thirds of the people in Western Sahara are Moroccan uh, settlers. And of course, that's a violation of Article 49 of the Geneva Conventions that when you're militarily occupying a place, you can't bring your civilian settlers in and change the demographics. It's of course what Israel does. But this is, I mean, Israel does it a little more slowly. These people marched 350,000 of the men. The way the United States has handled that is we've hedged, we, we've, we've like tacitly supported the Moroccan position by just saying nothing. And if you say nothing, the powerful stay in charge and the status quo. But then of course, recently, uh, President Trump in order to, you know, in, encourage the Moroccan normalization of relations with Israel, he overlooked a great international crime, one of the lingering colonial uh, situations in the world, and officially recognized the Moroccan claim to Western Sahara. You know, but to me, that's very different because we, again, it's, it's, there's similarities, but we've inverted the case. So Libyans didn't want to be ruled by Gaddafi, presumably. Um, Gaddafi sends his army to attack these demonstrators. We have to come to the defense of them. But in another situation where peoples don't want to be ruled, we do not support Polisario, which is kind of this uh, freedom fighter movement. And uh, and then we actually support the, the people who were invading, in this case, settler demonstrators. And of course, as I said, keep your eye on settler colonialism, keep your eye on French roots, because who bombs with napalm 
the Polisario columns, like they're, like they're rebel columns, the French, when they intervened in that 1975 war on behalf of Morocco. So um, I think, again, here, we look and say, when do civilian lives matter? Uh, when do we support a democratic uprising or any sort of uprising? And when don't we? Uh, we believe the Libyans deserve democracy, but we do not believe that the Western Saharan people deserve either democracy or even home rule. And that is fascinating and, and really calls into question our sort of self-styled, uh, you know, uh, greatest democracy in the world and beacon of freedom bit. Yeah, and well, I want to commend you because you have done a lot of historical work and uh, stuff I've read at antiwar.com uh, and Shearpost, just kind of documenting not just our current events, but also the last 70 years of, you mentioned U.S. support for settler colonial states. I'll just expand that to U.S. support for European colonies maintaining their colonies, colonists maintaining their colonies. And uh, you've also written about how the U.S. was largely in support of the Portuguese maintaining their colonies and uncomfortable truth that the U.S. was very much a supporter of South Africa. And to draw that comparison, I think as well with uh, with Morocco and, and Israel, which the, and the comparison is stark, like they're very similar situations. And shocker, the U.S. supports them both. And, you know, the fact that Suddenly, that we care so much about the the Libyans, who uh, the the percentage that were against Gaddafi. Let's not forget that many Libyans also were supporting Gaddafi. You know, on these, like you said, trumped up charges of human rights violations. I think that one of the one of the charges against Gaddafi was that he was handing out Viagra to rape as many people as he as his army could accomplish. You know, and that just gets passed along like it's like it's just fact. And uh, the other one was, he's going to murder every man, woman, child in Benghazi with no actual proof that he was going to. There had been a few hundred people killed at that point, mostly military-aged males with, with, that were armed. Not that that doesn't matter, but it does not indicate a leader who is about to commit genocide. Uh, and the person to read about that is Alan Cooperman. Uh, I forget where he's at, but he's kind of documented the, the falseness of that original claim about Libya. But I do want to move us forward because we, we got a lot of hypocrisy and inconsistency to cover. So staying in the North African Middle East region, I, w- I wouldn't mind to hear you talk about the case of the Egyptian uprising, also in 2011, and contrast that uh, or compare to the situation currently in Venezuela. Uh, so I'll let you riff about that, Danny. So, okay, so this one is, is definitely about, it's about two things to me. It's about um, democratic uprisings and, and what what constitutes, you know, a group that's worthy of our sport or people that's worthy of our sport. And it also has to do with um, what makes a, a government leader legitimate. And there's a lot of hypocrisy here. So Egypt is the number two recipient of U.S. military aid annually, only after Israel. One could argue, and I would, and I think I read it somewhere, and I'm riffing on that, that essentially the United States pays Egypt and Israel not to fight each other. Right. Because, you know, they make that peace with, you know, at the time of Jimmy Carter, a piece at the expense of Palestinians, by the way. Every one of these normalization programs that's being done, that's like causing us to like support all this indecency in Western Sahara. uh, All of this is peace without Palestinians. They don't factor. It's a sellout. Okay, so but we pay, you know, they've been a really important military partner. Uh, Their officers are all in our schools, like all of our military schools through the IMET program, uh, International Military Education and Training Program. Um, We tend to uh, train the guys that then run the coups, by the way. That IMET program, it's like known for that, of course. Like in Mali, it's happened twice in uh, eight years. But so Egypt is one of the, it's kind of the cornerstone in a lot of ways of the uh, Arab Spring. I mean, it's a big deal that the Egyptian 
you know, dictatorship that had been passed from, you know, sort of leader to leader is, um, is overthrown by the people. And uh, it's uncomfortable, though, because when Obama eventually kind of cuts Mubarak loose, right, the uh, kind of president slash dictator of Egypt, he wasn't sure he wanted to do that, but eventually he does. And there's a democratic election. And what, what all the realists, quote unquote, feared happened which is something that we could call the Islamist advantage when a state moves to democracy for the first time. And that is that because the Islamists, in this case, the Muslim Brotherhood, although they're pretty moderate in, the, in that world, okay, uh, what they have is they have these like mosque networks, but they also have these social services networks. And, and so they're already organized, right? And so even if they're not the majority, they win elections. Islamist groups tend to win the first election in Muslim countries that transition to any sort of democracy. So that happened, and uh, Mohamed Morsi becomes the president. He doesn't rule perfectly, of course, but he is a democratic, duly elected democratic leader. But we turn on a dime in 2013 when the Egyptian military doesn't like this all that much. The Egyptian military, that's very close to our military, by the way. Their generals call our generals, like they're friends, okay? And uh, he has a military coup and then shoots down uh, upwards of 1,000 uh, essentially peaceful demonstrators on behalf of the democratically elected Morsi, shoots them down in the streets and American military aid pauses for like a second, right? <laughs> I mean, there's no real consequences. And now no one even talks about like what one could argue is essentially the bulwark of the Middle Eastern world in many ways, culturally, population-wise, military power-wise, right? No one talks about the fact that it's run by a military dictator, basically. I mean, yeah, I mean, he gets reelected, or but he, it's it's run by this general who took power illegitimately. Flip to Venezuela, okay? Someone needs to explain to me what makes the leader of Venezuela, Maduro, worse than Sisi. Sisi, we know, imprisons people wholesale. He took power in an illegitimate military coup, and he murders people in the streets, shoots down people in the streets. But Maduro's somehow worse. Why? Because we scream the high heavens about the Venezuelan dictatorship, how awful it is to its people. Look, it's not a perfect regime. I don't think I'd want to necessarily live there. I don't, have, I don't love internal Venezuelan politics, but someone needs to explain to me why we scream the high heavens, put a bounty on his head, Wild West foreign policy style. That really happened in the Trump years. You know, basically blockade the joint, sanctions the place to death. Someone explain to me why are there no sanctions on CC's Egypt? Took power in a military coup, shoots down demonstrators in the streets. No, we are crippling the Venezuelan people, punishing the people mostly, running a wild west foreign policy, and backing the illegitimate, absurd, unpopular inside Venezuela Guaido government. And then we convince our entire block of the world that either likes us, depends on us, or is under our economic control to also recognize the Guaido pretender regime. It's like the it's like it's like the uh, you know, the Jacobite rebellions or something. I mean, we're supporting the pretender king of Venezuela, except he has even less support than they did. Um, and that's interesting because we wouldn't stand up for Morsi, the duly elected legitimate democratic leader, however flawed, of Egypt, but we back this Guaido guy. So what I think that tells us here again is, you know, are you useful to us as a country? Are you useful to us? Is your government useful to us? If the answer is yes. We will allow any manner of indecency to occur in that government. They can abuse their people, but they're useful. And the Egyptians are useful because they're seen, they, they stay at peace with Israel. We, we want that where we don't want them to go back to war. Uh, you know, they, they, they're they really close to our military. 
there's just a whole lot of reasons that we find Egypt useful. And, uh, and of course, Venezuela, the Maduro regime, just like the Chavez regime, speaks against American Yankee imperialism and, uh, you know, encourages independence among the Latin American and Caribbean republics. And, uh, and so that's inconvenient. And so they've got to go. And if the Venezuelan people have to suffer on behalf of it, we don't give two you-know-whats. Another thing that is worth noting is I'm wondering how much did the perception of the U.S. very much supporting the dictator Mubarak for so many years and only backing off really when it was convenient and the perce- that perception in the Arab world, how much did that influence the U.S.? Partic- I'm speaking particularly Hillary Clinton in her in the demand to become involved in places like Libya and Syria and kind of have a look of supporting the uprising rather than Egypt when they only kind of uh, dismissed Mubarak at the last second and then immediately backed Sisi as soon as um, as soon as Sisi took power in brutal fashion so that is interesting to think about and the other thing is well we compare you compare Mubarak and Sisi to Chavez and Maduro one thing Chavez and Sisi cannot say is they have not had the superpower of the world constantly interfering in their affairs so you know they have their own issues i know that there are violent islamists in egypt that that did undermine mubarak and sisi and continue to undermine sisi's power but they do not have this world superpower interfering in their affairs constantly so that does give a little more context to some of the alleged human rights abuses in venezuela some of the alleged repression you know that does have to be considered and as we move forward speaking of the Middle East, we're going to hit right at the heart of it right now. And there's probably no more efficient way to demonstrate the hypocrisy of the United States and the West than to talk about the situation in Palestine. And then we're going to compare that to probably a lesser known case for most most of the listeners, definitely most Americans, and that's the situation in Kazmir. So I'm going to ask you to riff on that and just uh, compare these two situations. Uh, I think this is this is one of the most instructive comparisons out there. There's a lot of similarity here. Um, Israel and India are the antagonists that we support in both of these cases. Okay, they're not a perfect example. They're not perfectly the same, but they're similar enough to be instructive. And the protagonists, who we in one case sort of almost like actively oppose, and in the other case we make invisible. Uh, are the Palestinian people and then, of course, uh, the Kashmiris who are under military occupation. And, uh, and, we, and we ignore both of them, our media does. Our media has never really been too, uh, too keen to highlight the Palestinian side in any real sense. Uh, but in, in terms of Kashmir, they're just, it's invisible. So what's the common factor here? Uh, well, same as we've seen before. In both cases, the United States is supporting the military occupier and the settler colonial entity, um, overtly so, settler colonialism in Palestine with the settlements, uh, and potentially in Kashmir, as the uh, the rules have been changed in the uh, in the Indian constitution or in the Indian government's kind of laws about how to administer Kashmir in such a way that it opens the door for Hindus to move there. Okay, so. Uh, don't be surprised if the ethnic chauvinist Modi monster, okay, Prime Minister Modi of India, uh, you know, goes in that direction. There's signals. Uh, remembering also, of course, that uh, his party, the BJP, uh, derives itself from the RSS, which derives itself essentially from the people who uh, killed Gandhi and in their, like, platforms and books, uh, quote Nazis positively about, like, we should be more like the Nazis, essentially. 
I don't know, maybe it's that whole Aryan connection that like the Nazis like kind of made up um, anyway, and the Aryans coming from India, maybe. So um, the common factor here, though, is who's useful. Who's useful? Israel is right. It's the only democracy in the Middle East. Not true. Not even a real democracy. It's kind of an apartheid ethnocracy, but nevertheless, and it's a it's a bulwark, right, of American values. And it's look, it's strategically important to us. We think it's actually a liability, Israel. But so that that means, as we said before, it permits all kinds of indecency. And in this case, the indecency. Look, someone has to get sacrificed in this situation. It seems. And who gets sacrificed? Usually, the weakest among us on the planet and so it's the palestinians right who are left without really a friend in the world because the united states has convinced even their fellow arab leaders for decades now to just abandon them to just abandon them so much for that arab pan-arab solidarity or pan-islamic solidarity that goes out the window so quick uh except with uh hezbollah and iran the shia ironically stand by their sunni brethren in palestine we'll get to that sometime and then in casual, look, India it used to be this like pillar of the non-aligned movement, like Nehru and stuff like we are not going to get involved in this Cold War. You know, what I mean, uh, you know, when India brutally rep- represses the Kashmiris uh, dreams of independence and right to independence since 1947, they do so largely with Soviet tanks and personnel characters or, or carriers and or Russian ones now. Right. Uh, the more modern stuff. So, you know, India used to be this kind of non-aligned, wouldn't really go either direction. That has begun to change, especially after the end of the Cold War, and especially with the rise of China. India now is so important to us, the new India, right? I always hear this talk within India that, like, Arundhati Roy, like, just destroys this talk of a new India. It means, like, a new capitalist and sort of, like, great power India. Uh, modern, tech-heavy, Bollywood. It's like, yeah, but they've got nine different insurgencies and are destroying their own indigenous people and are like a true chauvinist sectarian ethnocracy, right? Going in that direction of like Hindu nationalism uh, in a country that is very multi-ethnic and multi-religious. But the new India is now our new ally because they're the new bulwark. The idea is this, right? If this is us playing geopolitics, like those guys like Matt Kinder, like, or, or you know, whatever, that the guy who like talked about the Eurasian landmass, like in the turn of the you know, 20th century, whatever. The idea is that the only balancer to China that really matters to us is India, right? Because they're the growing population. They're gonna have the greatest population in the world. Their economy is rising. Truth is, it's really no match for the Chinese and isn't going to be for quite some time in any military uh, or even economic sense, but they are a big country. And, we, and they're a democracy. We always say they're the world's largest democracy. It's another lie, right? So, so Israel is the Middle East's only democracy. Not true, because there are actually others, although not many, and also not true because Israel's an ethnocracy and an apartheid state. Uh, and of course, India is the world's largest democracy by population, but of course, they're uh, like a Hindu chauvinist state increasingly, so they're not even really uh, a, a very great democracy. And it's really hard to be a, a, a perfect democracy or like a bulwark of democracy when Remember that Kashmir, in Kashmir, India, that is the most militarized space on the planet. 500,000 to 600,000, depending on the year, Indian soldiers make sure Kashmir doesn't have independence. That is a military occupation on a grand scale that is hard to fathom. And, uh, and that's, of course, all allowed because America doesn't say anything. Our silence is our complicity. Um, you cannot find a story about Kashmir in American media. They have been erased 
They have been erased from the earth. Their dreams, their aspirations, and their their inherent human rights have just been erased. And uh, by the way, one of the other um, factors that's just fun for me is uh, where does uh, where does India like how how do they get arms? Well, we know they still buy them from the Russians, which is awkward. Uh, Israel, Israel is a big seller of arms. And last point here, because it's all connected, and no one ever talks about this stuff. Nobody knows. And if they do, they don't care. And they don't care to know. Israel sends trainers and brings Indians in to Israel also. What are they training the Indian army and police about? They are teaching them how to run an apartheid state. They teach them security and intelligence operations. They're teaching them how to run Kashmir like an open-air prison the same way they run Gaza and the West Bank. And, uh, and of course, the key thing here is that the United States is complicit in all of this based on the flawed assumption that India and Israel are actually allies and important to us when in many cases they turn out to be a liability. Right, and thank you for bringing up the point of Palestine. I, I, we got to have you back on to just do a whole episode on Israel-Palestine because I, I have seen you talk about that publicly. You had a, a debate a couple of years ago where you're one of the best voices uh, in this in this argument that, that we have to put forward, that being anti-Zionist is not, has nothing to do with anti-Semitic. And I have a bit of cover for that because I'm half Jewish, but we need more people to realize this. And it's also surprising to me that the United States has not learned its lesson for its unquestioned support for Israel. Like, what, what were Osama bin Laden's grievances? It was uh, U.S. unquestioned support for Israel and their subjugation of Palestinians and also murder of Palestinians and, and Lebanese, for that matter, along with other grievances, support for Arab dictators occupying Saudi Arabia, the Holy Land. Actually, the United States hasn't learned from any of those, actually, when you think about it. Um, so I, I, I do want to move on to terrorism, but... I, you know, we yeah. can, there are a thousand examples of this where the U.S. will support uprisings in countries and then sometimes literally next door support the government in crushing uprising. We, you know, no, no better example than Central America in the 80s where the United States is supporting the Contras uprising in uh, uprising uh, terrorism in Nicaragua while supporting the brutal governments of El Salvador and Guatemala in crushing uprisings. And of course, you know, we, we, you, mean, you mean the governments that murdered priests and American nuns? Those governments? That's, yeah, those so, are the ones I'm talking about. Yeah. We're cool with that. We're cool with that. We don't mind that. Yeah, yeah. Raped and murdered in a shallow grave, American nuns. No, no big deal. They kept getting military aid. Right. And, and, you know, again, the United States, for all its talk of supporting democratic movements, you know, they'll watch the East Timorese be crushed by the Indonesians, though we are happy to watch. I mentioned before uh, the uprising in Bahrain get crushed by the Bahrain government and also, of course, Saudi Arabia had a part in that. So I think we have to acknowledge that hypocrisy is at the core of this. Speaking of hypocrisy, see that segue? Let's talk about this word terrorism. So we wrote about this on our blog, so people might already be familiar with uh, John and my take on this. But so the reason I want to talk about it, though, is because we've seen this renewed call for a crackdown on domestic terror. Uh, and I, in a way, I think it's good that people are finally realizing that the word is used totally hypocritically and inconsistently. But you know, for, for, there's a lot of problems with wanting a domestic war on terror. It's certainly not going to target right-wing terrorists. It's going to end up uh, targeting the most marginalized groups, Arab Americans, uh, black liberation groups. But also this view of, of terrorism 
as simply something done by non-state actors is extremely myopic and it just happens to be a US-centric perspective. So I want to talk about some of the traditional (laughs) definitions of terrorism and why we need to think bigger. So let's start with some basic questions. To you, sorry, not to you, to the US government, what do you believe constitutes a terrorist? And we'll move on from there as to what we should actually consider as terrorism. Well, uh, th- this is important because it does get back to the language. Um, from from everything that I can tell through most of historic examples, uh, a terrorist uh, has to be the following things uh, and to be considered a terrorist by the United States government. They have to not be a state for the most part, for the most part. The, there are some exceptions to that where we've like Iran and the IRGC is now like a terrorist entity, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, for the most part, they have to be like a non-state entity. It really, really helps if they're Muslims. But here's the thing. We've supported plenty of terrorists that happen to be Muslim, right? Uh, But for the most part, it helps to be that. Um, Another way to be a terrorist is to support, like, some other ideology, like fight for, you know, quote, freedom or whatever or independence, but support some other ideology we don't like. So, like, communism, Marxism was a big one. Uh, That made them terrorists oftentimes, too. Um, But mainly what you're fighting against like who you are opposing has to be someone we don't like i mean i mean it has to be someone we like i should say in other words if if terrorist tactics are used against a state or an entity the entity that we consider an enemy we're way less likely to call them the perpetrators terrorists so it seems again that the the main determinant is not consistency or some sort of application of like human rights or decency for that matter it's uh, how we perceive your action as either pro or against american interests and i say perceive because america does not even know what's good for it like it does not like it we would be so much better off just like spinning a wheel when we decided who we liked or didn't or like rolling dice like pick red or black on roulette like it would, it would, we would have better outcomes because we would be picked wrong all the time so we think these things are in our interest if we think that what these terrorists are fighting against uh, is something that is in our interest, then they're terrorists. If they're fighting against something that we think is not in our interest, then they become freedom fighters. Now, that's not always perfectly applicable, but it's generally the case. And then, again, if there's an ideology that we generally don't like that's at the root of it or even vaguely involved in their actions, uh, recently it's been uh, Islamism, right? Like like sort of what we'd call like extremist uh, Islam. Uh, or in the past, it was often any sort of like Marxism offshoot, right? Communist, especially during the Cold War. Those are the main components, I would say. Yeah, and I'm happy you brought up the whole qualification that in the U.S. government's mind, a terrorist is usually a non-state actor. And of course, it's exceedingly convenient because once you start talking about state actors, uh, well, we certainly have to start considering the CIA as one of the greatest terrorist groups, you know, 20 million, sorry, not 20 million, 20,000 people at least killed in Vietnam and the Phoenix program. God knows how many killed through funding the the Contras in Nicaragua. Uh, of course, the drone program, the to- the torture program, uh, you know, the aid to the Indonesian genocide. Uh, so I, I like that you draw that distinction that the U.S. government makes uh, and rare, rarely qualifying state terrorism as terror. Uh, but we are we are closing in on on being out of time here. So I, I'm going to ab- combine some of these questions here. So I want to talk about some of the groups that are terrorists and who they actually are, uh, and then 
you know, and can we highlight some of the hypocrisy in the United States labeling of these groups? So here, I'm going to name some groups. Certainly, you don't have to go into all of them, but mm-hmm. here's some groups that have historically been called terrorists. Like everyone knows the Al Qaeda currently, even though the United States is more than happy to support them when it's convenient. But also, we have the the PLO, the IRA, Hezbollah, uh, the ANC, the African National Congress, uh, the uh, the of course, the Houthis most recently, the IRGC, you mentioned the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, so who are these groups that have been considered terrorists? And can you speak to some of the hypocrisy therein, whereas these groups will be labeled as terrorist organizations, whereas other organizations like such as the Mujahideen al-Ikalk, uh, the, the Iranian terrorist group, uh, kind of slide by or get off that list somehow? Right, the you know the MEK uh, with the group you're talking about in Iran, which like they're like a almost like a cult as much as they are like terrorists or whatever. But they don't like the Iranian government, so we've like turned the other turned the, our our gaze away. And then Giuliani goes and like speaks at their you know conferences, so that's cute. Um, See, so he he's been crazy for a long time. And Howard and, Dean uh, too. Howard Dean is, has uh, taken money right. from him. Howard Dean, right? Um, Bipartisan. Uh, you know. Uh, by the way, I know we're out of, basically out of time, but like we have to in- invoke some hip hop. I'm wearing a Wu Tang shirt, of course, and yeah. here. But like, I just want to be on the record. I'm proud of this and say that I didn't like Giuliani way before everyone else decided he was crazy. I didn't like Giuliani in the '90s when Biggie was singing, "I'm seeing body after body, and no mayor Giuliani don't want to see no black man turn to John Gotti." Okay, that's the kind of Giuliani I didn't like. Okay, he's always been bad. Or uh, Az, I don't, I don't know if you know the rapper Az. He said something to oh, the effect oh, yeah. of. Giuliani's part of Illuminati, a million minds in one body designed to decline society. So that was like 95 or so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Easy. I was actually just watching the uh, Nas documentary. But anyway. Uh, Speaking of so, Wu-Tang, they, they mentioned PLO quite a bit, I think. All the time. And, I, and when I wrote one of my Lebanon series articles, I said, like, you know, Beirut, let's talk about language. Beirut used to be, and Belfast, which we're going to talk about the IRA. Beirut and Belfast, when when I was a kid, were, were synonymous with chaotic places. Like, if you wanted to say a neighborhood was bad, you'd be like, whoa, don't go in there. It's like Beirut. You know, you say that to someone who's 25 or certainly someone who's been one of your high school students, like, they, they won't necessarily, like, associate it the same way and certainly not Belfast, you know. You know, I make the joke at the local bar, the guys that I hang with, like, they, they're some of them are younger. They like to drink Irish car bombs, you know, and I, I'm not man enough for that anymore, but I always joke, like, the only Irish car bombs I like, they actually blow up in Belfast. <laughs> and these guys are in like their 20s and they're like, they don't really get it. I'm like, oh, except for one guy who grew up in Chicago. But nevertheless, when you talk about this terrorism thing, I'm going to talk about the groups. But look, it's, it's, it's interesting how we label it. And we lump these groups together that have almost nothing in common. I mean, almost nothing in common in terms of their goals, even often their tactics, um, sort of their uh, level of political uh, sophistication or involvement and it just all gets lumped together it's terrorism like i have a lot of problem with lumping you know there's lumpers and splitters among historians and like there's some value in lumping but you have to be really careful with that sort of like um you know sort of uh deductive thinking you know where it's like that social science stuff where we create a model and we fit everything into the model because you miss the nuance and therefore you may not uh, fight the right problem right or you're fighting something that's not even a problem but, you know, there's a, there was this uh, Netflix series a uh, couple of seasons of it that I actually kind of liked. It was called Love by with Judd Apatow did it. And uh, there's a scene in one of my favorite scenes in it, like the 10th episode. Uh, these two people go on a date and it's like not going particularly well, this man and this woman. And the uh, the woman texts, means to text her friend that the date's not going well. And she's not going to see him again. But she sends it to the, the, her date instead. So he decides to sabotage the date. 
So he's like saying crazy things and acting really inappropriate. But then she finds out that he knows because that same girl texts her and says, he's trying to sabotage the date. So they go back and forth and it gets really funny because um, he starts to like say crazy things and she like one ups him and basically says that like 9-11 was an inside job and she's a truther. And like, uh, and then the the guy in order to like go further, he goes, I mean, if you can even call what they did terrorism, you know, like the Al-Qaeda guys. And he goes, after all, what's a terrorist? But like a person who believes in something and can't afford a battleship. And like, it's really funny because it's meant to be he's trying to like show how crazy he is to her but in there he said something that's not like completely yeah. wrong all right like and I, I don't subscribe to suicide bombing or you know killing civilians but it's it is interesting because uh this is a really nuanced thing so all right uh the ira was pretty careful for the most part about their targeting they were obsessed with legitimate targets and they stretched it and they made mistakes. And then sometimes individual uh, sub leaders targeted people and they really stretched. For the most part, their targets were economic targets. They would call in warnings before they bombed buildings. They were trying to destroy the British uh, economic uh, motives for staying in Northern Ireland. And they would kill soldiers and they'd kill police officers who in Northern Ireland were very militarized and often sectarian. They were often uh, Protestant uh, until the late part of the war. Hezbollah, and so within the America, within America, the Irish American community is very in favor of the IRA. I mean, a lot of them were, and even like Congress people. I mean, Ted Kennedy wasn't like an IRA supporter, but he like supported the hunger strikes, the hunger strikers demands. He would uh, support, you know, independence for all of Ireland. Um, Peter King in New York was like pretty overt congressman in his support for the IRA, and then like immediately flipped and was like the most anti-Islamist terrorist person ever. And it's like some people pointed out, like, dude, didn't you like the IRA like yesterday? Um, but the thing about Hezbollah is like they don't have supporters in America, right? I mean, and they're not white, they're not Christian, they don't have like a base here in the United States, and they're just seen to be like straight up the same as Al Qaeda and ISIS. I mean, they've even been called like the A Squad, you know, uh, compared to Al Qaeda. The reality is that Hezbollah, um, especially after their first few years, looked a lot more like the IRA than al-Qaeda or some of these more extreme like Islamic State groups. There weren't mass beheadings, there wasn't serious ethnic cleansing, and they even kind of quit the suicide bombing thing, except against soldiers, like Israeli soldiers. And they were very careful about their targeting. And in that 18-year war, guerrilla war that they fought against Israel that kicked them out between 82 and 2000, they did remarkably little damage to Israeli civilians. And they were, they started wearing uniforms eventually. Now they have like uniformed battalions and brigades and they gave a bloody nose to the Israelis in 2006. All of that is lost though, because of what you're pointing out. And, and I think I'm just gonna kind of wrap up and hear it with that because of time and I wanna like close something interesting. But like basically here the point is th what I was saying about what makes you a terrorist isn't necessarily your targeting. It's not necessarily your tactic. It's not even necessarily your, your level of brutality. Uh, we will lump you together as terrorists if what you're attacking is something we like. So, you know, the only reason the United States was calling the IRA terrorists was because they were attacking Britain. Um, but at least they had a core constituency in the United States that kind of lobbied for some, you know, softening of that towards Northern Ireland, whereas Hezbollah or the PLO don't really have that. They're, they, you know, the, the Arab American lobby is a joke compared to say uh, the Jewish lobby or you know or just any of the other countries like support for the special relationship with the British um, the last one I'll mention is 
one of the best ways to show this point I'm making sometimes is through like an absurdist vignette, because even though it, it can still be instructive, Nelson Mandela was on the state like terror watch list until like 2007 or something. Why? Because the United States labeled the UW, which was the armed wing of the African National Congress, as terrorists and ignored largely until really late in the game when we were like forced by public uh, activism in the United States and international pressure. We were one of the great backers of the apartheid regime in South Africa. You show me a settler colonial enterprise, you show me an apartheid state, and I'll show you a state that's on America's like friends list. Okay, we are Facebook indecency friends with them. And so I think that that's important to note. So that that's that's kind of the main point about uh, about all this. And I think that if I had to say anything, it's um, when it comes to the terrorism label and that language, uh, splitting and individual cases and localized situations, basically nuance is a, a way better model than this like lumping it into just a term like terrorism because we miss so much in doing that. And people die because of it, by the way. Right. And thank you for bringing up the point about the manner by which groups fight somehow dictates if they're a terrorist, right? And you know, the, I don't remember the leader, but the, there's a leader of the Algerian uprising in, against the French. And when the French would complain that, well, why do you blow up bombs uh, in soldiers' barracks? The leader said, well, okay, well, why don't you give us some fighter jets? <laughs> you know, like, right. and, you know, it's right. like with the Palestinians could say the same thing. It's like, well, why are you launching rockets, uh, you know, these the, that uh, can land anywhere? All right, well, why don't you give us some smart bombs? <laughs> like, like it's, it's funny. It's like the way that someone fights dictates how respectable they are as a, as, and how respectable their cause is. And, of course, Robert Pape was the one who – he's the mm-hmm. political scientist, I believe, or historian. He did a lot of research to find that actually suicide bombing is not unique to Arabs. It's not unique to Muslims. It's actually the most common reason why people will conduct a suicide bombing uh, has to do with being in an occupied territory. It is used against occupying forces. But Danny, I, I know you're out of time. I want to thank you for pointing out all the inconsistency there. And we see it elsewhere too, you know, literally with the same groups, right? You mentioned the MEK, they're on the terror list uh, of terror organizations. Iraq was a state sponsor of terror, but then in 1982, when uh, Reagan wanted to sell him weapons, uh, Saddam Hussein weapons, they were taken off the list. So it's not even consistent on its own. And so lastly, Danny, you've been going hard at the Biden incoming foreign policy team. So I guess we can close with your thoughts. I know we talked about this last time, but a lot has happened. We've seen some appointments. Allegedly, we've seen the Yemen war is going to end or U.S. support for it is going to end, although I'm very skeptical about that. But you obviously have been very critical of this team coming in. Do you have any hope that we will see a more modest foreign policy? Do you think there's any chance to roll back the empire from what you and I most likely see as a march to inevitable self-destruction? I don't think that I don't see any real chance that we're going to roll back the structure of empire. Like I think the superstructure and the edifice is going to remain fixed in place, you know, by a president who said that, you know, elect me and nothing will essentially change. Um, his appointments personnel often is policy. Like, you know, be careful who you surround yourself with, you know, like Aesop's fables style. Um, he's put the arsonists in charge of the fire brigade in many cases. All that being said, I think that what we can hope for at best, and we're seeing some signals on a couple of things, is some of the most obscene like symptoms of the empire 
like some of the most obscene things that are that have been a result like the Yemen war we may see you know that was pretty symbolic the move that he did but I still think it was important and I I have to applaud it I just like I don't think we could just always be haters like and some people think that I am and it's not true like I think on Iran uh, I think we have a better chance of like marginally bringing down tensions than under Trump uh, when it comes to the Saudis and the UAE and the Yemen war and all of their madness that we've been like enabling, I think we, we will see modest improvements there. And then there's the climate factor, which is a foreign policy issue as much as it is a environmental one. So, yes, I think that there are some areas where there is minor optimism for like small changes. But th- this is not a transformational dude. Uh, I will say this, that when it comes to like Afghanistan, for example, and some of American troop deployments, I hate that I have to say this because like his record is so abhorrent in most cases and he's so inconsistent. But I trust Biden's gut more than his really smart advisors. Like I, I will take Biden's thought while he's on the toilet about what we should do about something in the world rather than Jake Sullivan's like carefully capted palace intrigue like super bright guy the national security advisor who I've really been hammering I can't stand the guy like obsessed with him it's a blind spot but like I trust Biden's guy and the only reason is this like his gut's going to be wrong a lot but it's kind of like that roulette wheel Jake Sullivan's going to be like awful on almost everything almost everything whereas Biden if you bring up his son um, you know he had said about Afghanistan like Look, I'm not sending my son back there to fight for human rights. He said this to Holbrook. Holbrook wrote in his diary. He had like a freak out about it. I mean, he kind of opposed the Afghan surge. Biden was a better voice on Afghanistan, for example, than almost anybody else in the Obama administration. He lost out, but he was right uh, generally. So I, my point is not that like Biden's going to be some hero and like his gut is like a bellwether for goodness. But uh, I, I trust it more than his picks. His picks are establishment, military industrial complex, kind of like, you know, like war industry sort of uh, lackeys or something, you know, and, and I worry about them. Minor chance for uh, improvement of the symptoms of our empire, like the most obscene parts, but no, I don't see the superstructure coming down. And if that does happen, it's not coming for either, from either of our two parties, unless one of them is totally remade by ground level activism. Well, thank you for the realistic prediction. Uh, yeah, I, I'm mostly in agreement. You know, I'll never forget that Joe Biden is, of course, the person who felt the need to place the Medal of Freedom around George W. Bush's neck. Uh, that tells you how much they disagree with each other. But, uh, yeah. Danny, uh, first of all, I want to comment that although we've had a very serious discussion, Danny has appeared on this podcast. You can't see him, but he's wearing a shirt with the Wu-Tang Clan on it. Uh in uh, glorious form, but it is actually a shirt that has the Friends logo placed beneath the Wu-Tang Clan uh, in a bit of contrast, uh, which I enjoyed as a 90s hip-hop fan. Uh, Danny, before we close out, uh, you have a new book coming out. Can you tell us a little bit about it and when people can expect it? Yeah, so I think uh, June 1st, uh, it's with the Steerforth uh, Press out of New Hampshire, but the uh, audio, which I'm reading right now very painfully, the audiobook version is actually coming through uh, Penguin Random House. Uh, it's called The True History. comes out June 1st. It's basically the Truth Dig series that I did, American History for Truth Diggers, with uh, some updates, uh, a couple of new chapters, and a lot of transitions. Uh, kind of a survey uh, history of the United States that attempts, probably fall short, but attempts to, uh, to bridge Howard Zinn's kind of bottom-up 
uh, history that doesn't worry as much about sequence and like big events and the more traditional like 1950s great white men history. So it attempts to kind of do both to tell the sequential story of the big events and players. So in that sense, it's a top down history, but all with an eye to the effects and to some extent the voices of uh, the bottom. So it's a, it's, it was a pretty big project and it came out of Truth Dig. I have Bob Shear thank for that and uh, definitely check it out. It, it's a it's it's a it's a scholarly work, but it's written for a public audience and a little bit of shorts and snark in there, so it should be all right. Well, Danny, we're all going to look forward to that, and uh, I want to thank you for joining us today on in the context of Empire. That's retired major Danny Scherzen in the U.S. Army. He writes at uh, Amer- the American Conservative, a lot at antiwar.com, at Sheer Post. You can find all his work at skepticalvet.com, and we look forward to speaking to him again. Thanks so much for joining us, Danny. Uh, Thanks very much. Always glad to do it.